0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. It is good to be with each of you as we jump back into the Word. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, it it sure makes the study of the Bible a little more uh, interesting and effective. So I'd encourage you to, uh, we have them right outside the door, we'll get you one and we'll jump in and take a look. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we know that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful in our lives for teaching us and rebuking us where necessary, correcting us and training us, Lord, in the ways of righteousness, and we, uh, we delight in it. Lord, we're thankful for it. We know that it can sometimes be painful to look into the word as it uh, makes us a bit uncomfortable, but we do know Lord, that even in those, with those wounds, so to speak, Lord, that healing comes and that you do a good work uh, within us, and uh, we delight in that. So bless our time now, minister to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Matthew 16. Last time we were together, we looked at, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the first 12 verses Uh, So today we're going to pick up where we left off, but let me just remind you of a couple things. Once again, in the first 12 verses of Matthew 16, Jesus is in a conflict with some people. Once again, he's in a conflict with some religious leaders. And this time, the religious leaders happen to be a strange group that have combined themselves together. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are demanding of him a sign. The, The verse in our English translations, many of them, Just simply says they came and they asked of him a sign but the reality is they come demanding a sign you do this you do this now for us prove to us who you are and as we saw jesus wasn't interested in sort of playing their game he knows that they're not really interested in learning who he is and so he's not interested in playing games for them and doing magic tricks for them or anything like that and so he says no sign and then he moves on from there. And as we read, the disciples, they get in the boat, they begin to make their way to another side of the Sea of Galilee, as they often, so often do, a more secluded place. And when he gets there with the disciples, he realizes that little interaction that he had with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees is a real good opportunity for Jesus to do a little teaching, a teachable moment, we call it. And so Jesus then makes the statement that they should be on their guard against the leaven. Of the scri- of, excuse me, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And again, if you were here, we spent time considering this, that the leaven of the Pharisees would be hypocrisy and legalism, that the leaven of the Sadducees would be things like worldliness and skepticism. And Jesus said, "Be on your guard against these things. Be careful of these things creeping into your thinking. And as leaders, certainly, be careful of these things creeping into your teaching. And so Jesus says, beware. Well, that brings us to our passage for today. If you notice verse 13, it speaks of a new area that they're going to go into. And that it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And so we're, we're moving on to a new place. There are those that have suggested that this would have been a good uh, start of a new chapter. Remember in our Bibles, that chapter verses, chapter headings, the chapters themselves, the numbers... They were not in the original they were added later to help us navigate the bible a little better again it's a lot easier to say john 3:16 than it's about that far in your bible you know it's a lot easier to find if if we had to do that today you'd still be looking for matthew 16. if i said turn to about there in your bible you'd be looking and looking so we have these chapters and verses that were put in and beginning in verse 13 you have such a transition in the life and ministry of christ it almost seems appropriate that it should be the start of a new chapter. It's been described, chapter 13, verse 13 and following, has been described as sort of the apex of Jesus' ministry, that everything has sort of been building to this particular point, and then he can go on, if you will, in a new direction, that this point that he's, we're going to get to today, at some point in time, we'll get there, but that this point was bringing the disciples to the place of acknowledging who exactly he is and then with that understanding firmly in place then he can go on to the reason why he came here on the earth and so we've been building toward this so much like we've been building this morning let's turn and read verses 13 and following it says now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they said some say john the baptist Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Seems like a peculiar ending. Verse uh, 20, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. We'll talk about why he would say such a thing in a few minutes. But let's begin going back to verse 13. Notice again, the setting is the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an area, a district, a a county, if you want to think of it in our terms, that was north of the Galilee region that Jesus lived in. And one of the northernmost cities of the Galilee region was the city of Capernaum. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of that. Galilee region was almost primarily Jewish. This area, Caesarea Philippi, was almost entirely Gentile, and that'll become important, this area of Caesarea Philippi. It's an area of land that people had lived in for thousands of years, really, um, or at least a thousand years or so. And it's an area of land whose name had undergone a number of different changes. In the Old Testament era, it doesn't appear in our Bibles, but we know historically in the era of when the Old Testament was written and, and the events are being spoken about, the area was known as either Baal Hermon, or Baal Gad. Now, Baal's a god. Hermon is a mountain. Gad is a region. And so it was named Baal Hermon, Baal Gad, in honor of the deity that they worshiped, the deity Baal. Somewhere in the intertestamental period, that's between the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, roughly around the year 400 or so BC to the year zero or year one or whatever, somewhere in that time, it changed its name from Baal Hermon, Baal Gad, and it became known as Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S. And that was, they renamed the area in honor of their Greek god, the Greeks had taken over the region, and the Greek god was the god Pan. And so they changed the name to Panias. It was during the lifetime of Christ that the area went under another name change, and this time it was in honor of the Roman emperor. And so this time it became known as Caesarea in honor of the caesar the emperor of the roman people now there was another caesarea already in existence that sometimes is just called caesarea or caesarea by the sea caesarea maritima it's commonly called today it's um like an archaeological place today uh so in order to differentiate from that caesarea this particular caesarea became known as caesarea philippi and the philippi was added he was the herod at the time that oversaw the change of name and and all of that kind of stuff so that's the area that we're talking about it's a place called Caesarea Philippi 25 miles north of where Jesus would have lived and and done a lot of his ministry now as with a lot of the parts of the world that underwent romanization romanization is the forced romanizing of a group of people we're in charge you're going to be Romans now. That means you're going to talk in this language, you're going to do these particular things, you're going to worship in these particular ways. And so lots of places in the world underwent this forced Romanization. And you know, many people, knife stuck to them. They're like, all right, tell me, what what do I believe now? I believe anything you tell me you want me to believe. And what they began to do was take the new Roman terms and apply them to their Greek religion or their pre-Greek religions, uh, the false religions that they worshiped. And so they said, yeah, we believe what you believe, but they really didn't, even though they may have used the same terms. Well, anyhow, that's what began to happen here in this area now called Caesarea Philippi, where they continued, even though they're now Romans, they continued to worship the Greek god Pan. And I bring it up today because it makes, I think it is uh, directly referred to by Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Pan, uh, Caesarea Philippi, formerly Paneus, it was the center of the worship of the Greek god Pan, and as with the worship of many of the Greek gods or goddesses as well as some of the deities you see in the Old Testament and so on, as with the worship of these false gods, it was very sensual in nature, very sexual in nature in the worship. So I don't know if this is a good thing to do or not, but if you think mass orgy, don't think too long on it, just quickly think of it, that's the idea of how they worship their god Pan. And so In addition to that, in the midst of that worship service, they would take a live goat and they would sacrifice that goat to their god. They depicted their god Pan as a human body with a goat's head. And so they would take a goat and they would bring it to the edge of this mountain, this rock face, which had basically a big cave opening. I, I forgot to get a picture, Mark. Sorry, we had a long discussion about it this week. But we go there on our Israel trip. Mark took a couple pictures, and then I forgot to put them in here. So I'm just going to tell you. So if you really want to know what they look like, you can't go on Google. It just doesn't do it. You have to come with us to Israel when we go. But anyway, just a shameless plug. So you have this rock face, big open ca- um, opening there, like a cave there. But when y- you can't really go into the cave because it's just a long drop down, about 30 feet down where there used to be a flowing river underneath that, okay? Can you picture that in your minds there? Now, an interesting thing occurred as the waters of the river came into this opening, they would sort of like slosh and, you know, do one of these, and every now and again, if the tides were just right, the waters would kind of explode and come up. We went to see a place very similar in Mexico that did this, and so in my mind, I can picture it. Hopefully, you can as well as the waters just kind of crash and come up. Well, what they would do is they would take this live goat and they would toss it down into this pit, if you will, this cavern, and then eventually the waters would do what they would do, and then they would explode up. And the thinking was, if they exploded up and they were filled with the blood of the animal, well then the god accepted the sacrifice. If they didn't explode with the blood of the animal coming up, then the god did not accept the sacrifice. Interesting, the name of this cave, they referred to it as the gates of hell. And so I think that's why it's significant that Jesus will bring his disciples there and say that phrase, uh, what is it, in verse 18, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I wouldn't be surprised, I certainly have nothing to base this on, but I wouldn't be surprised if when Jesus brought his disciples up to that region, he set himself up on a high point with the disciples and they looked down and they oversaw one of these worship services. Almost as if Jesus is saying, that's what we're dealing with. And that's what we're playing with. And the disciples, good Jewish boys, never been to a church service like this before. And are thinking, oh my gosh, it's just evil and wickedness. And Jesus would throw that phrase, look, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Again, I don't know that for certain. But either way, what we do know is this. It says in verse 13, somewhere in that region, perhaps overlooking this place of worship that I described to you, jesus surveys the disciples and he says who do the people say that i am or i did that last time he says who do the people say that the son of man is now jesus doesn't have to explain let me i'm talking about me guys He, he doesn't have to explain that to them they knew immediately jesus used the phrase the son of man to describe himself over 80 times in the gospels i think it's 84 times in matthew mark luke and john so they knew certainly that he was talking about himself jesus borrowed the phrase from the book of daniel in the book of daniel daniel refers to the messiah as the son of man and jesus took the phrase on himself commonly referred to himself as the son of man and so essentially he is saying to them who do people say that i am and as we see in verse 14 the disciples they begin to respond Notice they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was a contemporary of John the Baptist, so that doesn't really make any sense because you know they talked with one another and interacted with one another. But remember, John was executed, and there was this rumor that went around that even the Herod believed that Jesus was John reincarnated or something like that. And so they're saying, all right, well, some say you're John the Baptist that's saying something religious leaders regular people a lot of people had great respect for john the baptist and so they're showing jesus some respect jesus uh, they say you're john the baptist others the disciples say say that he was elijah well it's a lot of it's a high honor to be called john the baptist it's an even higher honor to be called elijah elijah is considered one of the greatest and has long been considered one of the greatest of the jewish prophets And so to be called Elijah is something. But in addition, there is a prophecy about Elijah that's found in the book of Malachi, which speaks of before the coming of the Lord that Elijah would come first. And so, in saying that some say you're Elijah, what they're saying is you're the precursor to the Messiah. Well, that's certainly high praise as well. Others say that he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And and so though they have, there's no consensus from the masses as to who jesus is clearly they think he's someone so the answer isn't well they think you're some guy from nazareth who, who is a carpenter and is pretty good at his job or whatever they clearly think he is someone he's one of the prophets of old not just a run-of-the-mill jewish carpenter again i, I jotted this down the people may not know exactly who you are lord but they certainly think you're someone And as you think about our day, here we are 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later. And people today are still answering this question of who Jesus is. There are very few who have no opinion about Jesus. The Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's their opinion. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is Michael the Archangel come in the flesh. Who is Jesus? Muslims believe that Jesus is is a prophet in the long line of prophets from Adam to Moses to Elijah and then ultimately to Muhammad. The New Ager, and New Age is a religion in and of itself, though it wouldn't call itself that, it believes that he was a divine being, much like you and I are divine beings according to their thinking. Hindus believe that Jesus was the perfect example of self-realization that we should all strive for. The Buddhists sees Jesus as one of the many gurus here on the earth, to show the path to reality, which they would call Brahman, which is essentially that we're all God. And we all realize that, the path to reality. They believe Jesus was the perfect guru. Even non-religious people have a view of who Jesus is, seeing him as a good moral teacher with many nice things for all of us to learn. So everyone, even today, are still formulating opinions as to who Jesus is. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day were doing the same things. And they had all sorts of ideas who Jesus was. And so Jesus asked the question Who do people say that I am? Now, you might look at this and you might think Jesus is posing the question because he didn't really know who he was. Or maybe he wanted a little encouragement. He was down a little bit and he just wanted to hear some people say, Well, you're a remarkable fellow, or something like that. He wanted a little encouragement. I w- I'm reminded of the movie. The movie Saving Private Ryan, you may recall. Many of you perhaps have seen that. And in the movie, if you don't know the storyline, there's a particular private. He's out in the middle of World War II and he's got to be brought back home uh, for this reason or that reason. And so they send a, a force, a troop, to go find him. And all these people die as a result of this effort to go find this private. And they eventually find him, he makes his way home, he lives the rest of his life. Life, And when he's older, probably in his 70s or 80s, he makes his way back to Normandy and he's there in the gra- uh, seeing all the graves and the tombs there uh, of the people. And he comes across the names of people that he knew. And he's all by himself, it's a great part of the movie if you haven't seen it. But he's all by himself there and the tears begin to come to his eyes. And his wife makes his way over to him and he says to her, just simply, tell me that I'm a great man, he says. Tell me I'm a great man because people gave their lives that I may live my life. And I, I certainly hope it was worth it. I live my life well. So I think of that. Is, is that what Jesus wants? Is Jesus looking for people to encourage him? You're a great guy, you're a remarkable guy. That's not his intention either. Jesus isn't in this so he can hear some pick-me-up words from his disciple. He's here because of the next question. He's trying to bring people to that place where he will point the question a little bit more so. Look at verse 15. The more important follow-up question is, but who do you say that I am? So it's great that these disciples have the pulse of the nation. And they know that some think he's John and some think he's Elijah and some think he's one of the other great uh, disciples. It's great in our day that people can tell us what the Buddhist thinks or what the Muslim thinks or even what the, the secularist, the non-religious person thinks. But the reality is the question has to go that next step. But who do you say that I am? And so Jesus throws that question. And I would say this to you. On the authority, on the authority of the Word of God, and either the Word of God is wrong, and that I'm wrong, or the Word of God is right, and what I'm saying is correct, on the authority of the Word of God, there is no more important question that every one of us on the earth has to consider than this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Somebody has said this about this question and so on, that the door to eternity swings open based upon the answer to that question. The door to eternity swings open based upon the answer to that question. Because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, well, then he cannot be your savior. For good moral teachings are not mighty enough to save anyone. If Jesus were just a prophet in this long succession of prophets, as the Muslims believe, then he cannot be our savior because none of the prophets had the the power or the ability to save anyone if he is just an angel or a spirit or a guru or even a deity, this idea, small g, of the long list of gods that people have invented, then he cannot be our savior because all of those have tragically come up short time and time again throughout history. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, come to take the penalty of sin upon himself, then he is exactly the sort of savior that you and i must have again the door of eternity swings upon the answer to the question who do you say that i am now as we look at verse 16 we see that simon peter replies first we always assume we assume that simon peter was very quick to reply but the text doesn't say that peter does have sort of this reputation of being somewhat impulsive but again the text doesn't say that that's what occurred here but nonetheless, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine when the question was asked that there was sort of like a silence. You ever been in class and the teacher asked a question and you know the answer, but you don't want to raise your hand because you're afraid you might get the obvious question wrong or something like that. And so there's just sort of this silence. Well, I think that's kind of what's going on here. Peter, like I know the answer. Well, I should wait my turn. And he knows the answer, and is kind of glancing around, and he finally says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the... He answers the question finally that all the disciples were like, I was going to say that, you know, or whatever. They were all going to say it as well. Uh, it as well. And so he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you, you need to know that's saying something. He is declaring in that statement two things. Number one, that he is the Christ, that is that he is the long awaited anointed messiah promised by god sent to this world to deliver us from the penalty of our sins all of that in those words you are the christ and secondly that he is the son of the living god notice not a son of the living god but the son of the living god and to the jew in that day to make that statement is to make the, it's a de- definitive statement to declare that you are God, when he makes that statement there. It's to ascribe the person the same characteristics of the deity. And since the Jews only believed that there was only one God, to refer to someone as the Son of God was to declare or to say, you are God in the flesh. And so Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And, he re- and they respond, you're the Messiah of Israel, you are God in the flesh. Now Jesus, he continues He says in verse 17, He answered them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He calls him Simon Barjona. So if you look through the Bible, sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon Peter, sometimes even in the epistles he's called Cephas, and here he's called Simon Barjona. He's got a lot of aliases. I think he may have been like, shady with the law or something you know what i mean he's got all these aliases but this one here he's called simon bar jonah that little prefix there bar that's a term which means son of so here he's being called simon the son of jonah or the son of his dad's name was john and notice jesus says to him simon son of john blessed are you he calls him blessed he doesn't say simon son of john how intelligent are you how wise of you, or Simon, son of John, how so much more perceptive you are than everybody else. But instead, he says, Simon, blessed are you. And it's important for us to know this, that Peter and the disciples, they did not come to this conclusion about who Jesus was because they were more perceptive spiritually than other people or more intelligent or or whatever it may be. They came to this understanding by the grace of God. They come to this understanding because they were blessed to be able to come to this understanding. And notice even, Jesus makes it even more clear in verse 17. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the blessing. No man convinced these guys that Jesus was God in the flesh, the Messiah of Israel. But as he says there, the Lord revealed to these guys, to Peter, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, just as He does today. It's the Lord that reveals. And I think this is important for us as we're trying to share our faith with others. So here we are on this side, if you will, of that salvation door. And there are those that are outside that we want to share the faith with. We'd love to see them enter into a relationship with God as well. And sometimes I think we're reluctant to do so because we fear that, you know what, I don't know if I have the words to say to convince the person to come to faith and the answer is you don't you can't convince anybody the Lord has to reveal that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God that has to come from the Lord now is there a place for you to equip yourself certainly so we know that the Lord uses us as a part of the process and I think it's wise of us to prepare ourselves now for the opportunity that will come later to introduce people to the faith and get them thinking about questions that the lord can then take that information and kind of just marinate that in their heart when they go away somewhere but ultimately it all has to come from the lord i like what g campbell morgan says he says our perpetual business is that of leading men to him and then leaving men with him the idea is here do your work lord and the lord will just do his work in that person's heart as he did in your heart as well and so Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, or my father. Now, continuing in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, in these two verses, there's a bunch of ideas that people have come up with based on these verses and Jesus' words to Peter here that I believe people have missed the point of what Jesus was trying to say. And they've become pretty standard-like thinking in a lot of Christianity. So I want to take a moment and take a look at them. First, we have this statement where it talks about Peter and the church that is going to be built. So he says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So one conclusion is that Peter will become the foundation stone of the church and by that the the meaning is that the mantle of leadership is passed from Christ himself to Peter and he would someday pass it on to somebody else who would someday pass it on to someone else the term that is used is the vicar of Christ perhaps you heard it the idea is the representative the earthly representative of God the vicar of Christ that 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 is Peter the other part of the verse I'll talk about that in a minute the other part of the verse I think trips people up is this idea of the keys of the kingdom being passed to Peter, and what exactly that means. And so I want to take a look at these two ideas. Let's look at the first one about the rock and his building of his church and so on. Again, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First off, there's a play on words that doesn't come over too well in the English language, but would have in the original. There are two words in this statement that are very similar in the Greek language. And they are the words that we have translated Peter and Rock. So let me insert those words so you can see it here on the screen. It says, I tell you, you are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. See how similar those two words are? But their meaning is very different. Petros is the name Peter. And so just like us, a lot of our names mean something. Greg, it means handsome that's what Greg means something like that I don't know exactly what it means but anyhow the name Peter or Petros it means a rock or a stone and by that we're talking about one you might find on the ground or whatever you'd pick it up and you throw it into the flower bed or something like that it means a rock or a stone specifically a small rock or stone Petra which we have in our versions translated as rock that's the term that would be used actually for a boulder Or you might even say, like you might look at the side of like a mountain or something, and you'll say, that's one mighty rock to climb, or something like that. You're referring to the big mountain, if you will. Very different from the stone that you can pick up and you can toss on the side. And so we're talking about two different things, and the confusion is that the words are very similar. But if Jesus wanted to declare that Peter was the vicar of Christ, well, then he messed up with the words that he chose. What he should have said was, you are Petros, And upon Petros, I will build my church. But he said something very, very different. Jesus is not declaring that Peter, the foundation of the church would be built on Pope Peter or something like that. That's not his declaration. Rather, his declaration is that the foundation of the church would be built on the confession that Peter has just made or the other disciples have made or every one of us, if we're a believer in Christ, has made. The context of the verse makes that the only other option. And so it's as if this is the conversation. Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? They answer, the Christ, the Son of God. And he responds, on that rock I will build my church. He's talking about the confession of who Jesus is that the church is going to be built on. And so with these first century disciples, we unequivocally proclaim this, that, it, that he is, Matthew 16, 16, the Christ, the Son of the living God. As it says in the book of John, chapter 6, that He alone has the words of eternal life. As it says in Hebrews 4, that He appeared the first time to offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and that He will come again with salvation, if you will, in His hand. We declare that boldly. That's the church. It's built on that. Acts chapter 4, we boldly declare that there was no other name under heaven given by whereby we must be saved. That's the proclamation, that's the rock that the faith is built on, those proclamations. And it's to our peril as an organization, and quite honestly, many local churches really just sort of devolve down into being a local organization, where they become like the Elks Club, or this club, or that club, or whatever, where people can kinda come smile at each other, you can meet some business associates, whatever it might be. But the church is not an organization. And sadly, too often, the church devolves into an organization because it fails to remember the truths that Jesus gives to us here. Number one, that it's His church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It, you know, let's build a church or whatever. We, it's His church. And we don't have any right to change the mission of His church, as so often many have done throughout the millennia. Secondly, the foundation of His church is the bold proclamation that salvation is found nowhere else but in the work of christ on his cross that's the confession the rock the confession i should say is the rock that the church was built on and must continue to be built upon and then thirdly is this statement jesus makes in verse 18 where it says the gates of hell will not prevail now that's certainly encouraging isn't it it's encouraging it's reassuring to know that despite the impression that the days are growing dark, that it seems that the church is at risk of even being overrun and conquered, that the reality is that the gates of hell will never prevail. Remind yourself of these things. Number one, the gates of a city were, if you will, the seat of the government of that city. And so everybody would have to come in there. That was the center of town, so to speak, even though it was the entrance of to a city and that's where government would take place council meetings would take place there strategies for the city were formed there they were modified there they were solidified that there in the gates of the city and so jesus in making this statement the gates of hell will not prevail he's essentially saying the schemes and the strategies of the enemy will not prevail against god's church the schemes and the the strategies of the enemy will not prevail now they may prevail against some local church that's been deceived and goes the direction they should have never gone down but it will never prevail against his church capital c he says the gates of hell will not prevail now there's another way that you can look at this it's a slight modification of the the phrase there which is acceptable in the language and instead of saying the gates of hell will not prevail prevail sort of gives a sense that the gates are coming against us and you know everybody Get ready. You know, and we're holding our ground against the gates. Uh, they will not prevail. But another way that this could be translated is the gates of hell will not hold up. The idea of the gates of hell will buckle under the pressure. And I like that. I don't know if that's what was meant necessarily, but I appreciate that because if it's an idea of the gates coming against us, well then the church is on the defensive. And everybody quick, get in the church. We'll block the doors and we'll make sure that we're safe here. But this idea that the gates of hell will not prevail, will not uh, hold up, the idea seems to be trying to convey that the church is going to go on the offensive itself. And we're going to go right to the gates of hell. And the gates of hell will not be able to hold up and they'll eventually buckle. And people will be converted to the faith. And I appreciate that. And I, I don't know if that's what is meant here. But certainly the scripture gives that indication that we should be going outside of the walls of this building. We're not some safe, secure, freezing, apparently, little club that gathers here on Sunday morning, but rather we go and we take the gospel out here. And so this is the reason why we as a church will go and we will do that. And we'll go and we'll take the gospel. If that alternative understanding is correct, it means that we need to actively be going on the offensive because the strongholds of the enemy will not be able to prevail that's why we can boldly go into prisons as we have been doing as a softball team and interacting with hundreds of people sometimes close to a thousand people because we're confident that the gates of hell will not be able to hold up against the gospel message it's why we send teams to kenya why we send teams to nepal or belize or any other place that we've sent people honduras or the other places that we've gone because we're confident that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail And that the gospel will be able to go forth into that area and people will be converted. It's why we minister to the young guy or gal that have found themselves unexpectedly pregnant. Or to the addict that's on the streets of Trenton or in Bordentown. It's why we bring the gospel to them because we know, what do we know? That the gates of hell will not prevail. I I said earlier, it's like a political convention where I set you up and you call out the answer. You didn't do very well, my friends, but that's okay. But we know that the gates of hell shall not prevail. They will buckle under the pressure. Three rock-solid truths about God's church in this verse. Number one, it's His church. It's built on the foundation, the unequivocal declaration that He alone is the means of our salvation. And then number three, the gates of hell will never be able to withstand God and His work. So that's the first section. Now the second phrase that trips some people up is this phrase, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what exactly does that mean? And also you look at that verse there, what you bind in heaven will be loosed, what you bind on earth will be loosed in heaven. What exactly does that mean as well? Well, let me state pretty plainly this. Peter was not given the keys to heaven so that he could decide who does and does not enter into heaven. If you look at a lot of artwork and things like that that has been produced over the last couple thousand years, much of that artwork, many times you'll see Peter and he'll have you know, a rope belt like a janitor with keys hanging down off of the side or something like that. And, and the idea comes from this particular verse and there are those that have even developed doctrines that somehow Peter is involved with who gets to go in and who doesn't get to go in. So again, stating it as plainly as we can, Peter was not given the keys to decide who gets to come in and who doesn't. We hear a lot about Peter standing at the pearly gates when I get to heaven and I see Peter standing at the pearly gates, I'm going to, whatever, I'm pretty certain he's not going to be at the pearly gates. He's going to be at the throne where you're going to want to be so you can worship your Lord. That's what heaven, the glory of heaven, and that's where he is. And if he got stuck at the pearly gates, he's going to say, this stinks! I want to be here, I want to be in there, I want to be worshiping, why do I have to be the usher? Well, anyhow, when Jesus says to Peter, keys of the kingdom, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that would go forth from him and from these disciples. Again, remember, in not too long, these disciples, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is going to be physically off the scene from these disciples. And it's going to be the responsibility of these disciples and you and I, as the Great Commission tells us, to go and bring the gospel message to those that are around the world. If you will, to take the keys of the kingdom And begin unlocking those doors of salvation so that people can enter into a relationship with God. That's what Peter did. Acts chapter 2, we have the story of Pentecost where he got up and he unlocked that door of salvation and he swung it wide open. And it says in Acts 2 that 3,000 entered in on that particular day. We read in Acts chapter 10, he's with a smaller group of people, but he's with a Gentile group of people. And Jesus un- or excuse me, Peter unlocked the door of salvation to that Gentile group and the door swung wide open and the Gentiles that were in his presence entered in. Historically, we know that it was Thomas that brought the gospel to the nation, if you will, of India and he unlocked the door of salvation and that many came to faith because of the ministry of Thomas in that region. Matthew is said to have gone to Ethiopia and done that. John went to present-day Turkey. Philip is said to have gone to northern Africa. Andrew, it is said, went to what we know today as the nation of Russia. All that way to find a people and to unlock a door and say, This is the way that a man can be saved of their sins. That's the keys of salvation. Those men, those early disciples, every one of them, they obeyed the Lord's directive to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and to unlock that door of salvation. But it wasn't just those. And so in the entire church era, We have those from the original disciples that also obeyed. And so we have the Hudson Taylors and the Gladys Allwards that brought the gospel to China. We have the David Livingstons who brought the gospel to the interior of Africa. Here in the United States, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached the gospel in the colonial era era to a people that had grown cold to the gospel. Adoniram Judson, David Brainier, Amy Carmichael, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, men and women, who went where the Lord led and revealed the one and the only way a person might be saved, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, you know, I wonder, you could take some time and you can think about that person in your life who took the keys of salvation, they came, they unlocked the door, they swung it wide open, and they gave you the opportunity to believe and to enter in. And in my case, it was when I was 17. It was a bunch of people all working together. We needed a bunch of people to help me get into the kingdom. But a bunch of people all working together to explain to me the gospel and to understand people like who, Robin Ernst. Now, Robin went on to be my wife, so be careful who you share with because you never quite know. But Robin, a young teenage girl with me, shared the gospel. A woman named Candy Bilby, the pastor of our church, a guy named Bill Thompson and a brother in our church, a fellow by the name of Chris Baker. Each one of them shared the gospel with me, unlocked that door of salvation, and I got saved. And I'm so grateful for them taking the keys that God had given them. And you know what's humbling to realize? For some of us, if we were to ask that question, think about the person that helped lead you to the Lord. Some people would think of us in this room. And that's incredibly humbling. It blows your mind, really, that our names would come to their mind, that we would be used in that particular way. But that's the idea of being given, this idea of being given the keys to the kingdom as Peter was. Now the other phrase there is the idea of binding and loosing things on earth and in heaven. In first century Judaism, the rabbis believed, the people really, everyone believed, that it was the rabbis that had the authority to bind and loose things. And so the more important of a rabbi you are, the more important or the more authority that you had. And so Jesus is turning everything upside down here and not saying that the religious leaders have the authority, but a bunch of fishermen and guys like that have the authority. I'd like to explain what we mean by this. Binding and loosing, they were administrative terms in daily Jewish life, and so whenever a person came to a particular action, you would go to the law. And if the law spoke to that particular issue, it would either bind you, you gotta follow what the law says, or loose you, you you can not have to do it because the law doesn't talk about it or it says it's permissible. And so that was that there. To loose was to permit, to bind was to prohibit. To bind something was to declare that it was forbidden. To loose something was to declare that it was allowed. And the authority, if you think all the way through sort of the history of God working with people, the authority of the faith was originally in the hands of the priests and the rabbis of the Jewish faith. But we've already seen Jesus is transitioning that authority away from them, and he's transitioning. First, he transitioned it to himself. And we saw the example in Matthew chapter 12, where the disciples are walking through the field, and they begin to pick heads of grain and eat that. And the rabbis get all uppity about it. And he, what are you doing? You can't do that. And Jesus said, no, they're allowed to do it. You be quiet. Or something like that. I forget exactly how it was worded. I'm sure it wasn't like that. But anyhow, Jesus declares that it's okay. He took the authority to declare that it was okay. We saw in Matthew chapter 15, not too long ago, that Jesus dealt with the issue of the ceremonial cleansing that was required before eating and all of that. And Jesus said, yeah, we don't do that. The authority is transitioning. Now he's going to transition it from himself to these apostles. And so we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would write that the church would be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. These apostles would become the ones with the authority now to loose and to bind, to forbid, and to declare permissible. And so we see some examples of this already in the book of Acts. And so in Acts chapter 10, when Peter declares that it's no longer unlawful for him to visit or to go into the home of a Gentile, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. We have another example in Acts chapter 15 where the Jerusalem council gathers under the leadership of the apostles and they give their ruling that nothing more is required of these new Gentile believers. There were many that were saying that that's great, but first, before you become a believer, you got to become a Jew, then you can become a believer. And Peter said, no, or the the, the, uh, council, James leading it said, no, they don't have to do that. And they make that declaration. If you read through the epistles, you see over and over again the apostles inspired by the holy spirit offering direction as to what it means to be in relationship with christ and how to accomplish what that relationship's going to look like now so the authority is given to them now that that doesn't mean that the apostles were without fallibility certainly in the writing of scripture they were without fallibility because they were inspired by god as they did so but in their daily lives and their daily interactions that didn't mean that these guys didn't get it wrong We see an example in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul tells us that he had to rebuke Peter, Apostle Peter, Pope Peter, as some would suggest, that he had to uh, rebuke Peter because Peter was askew and he was off in his thinking. He was playing the hypocrite. And so Paul addresses that. So it doesn't mean that these guys are without fallibility. They still had sinful natures. The point, though, is this, that the authority to build and govern the church was given to these men as they submitted themselves to, to the Holy Spirit. That's the idea of binding and loosing. Now there's one final point on this uh, binding and loosing thing and that is this. These things aren't bound or loosed in heaven because a decision was made by these people here on the earth to do so. Because what that would mean is that heaven is at the mercy, if you will, at the whim of fallible human beings. Rather, the idea is this. Things are bound and loosed on earth by these apostles because they have already been bound or loosed in heaven heaven doesn't come into agreement with these men these men come into agreement with heaven does that make sense all right well maybe not anyway verse 20 no answer verse 20 says then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the christ now that seems counterproductive doesn't it we're trying to build a kingdom here lord and you you don't want us to tell anybody about who you are It seems counterproductive. Lord, if you want to advance your kingdom, we're going to have to tell someone about you. And if they did say that to Jesus, his response would have been something like, yes, you will, but just not yet. I don't want you telling anybody yet. And the reason why, and again, that still seems a little peculiar, but again, remember, as we come to verse 13, we've sort of, we're at the apex of Jesus' teaching. All of this teaching has come to this point, to reveal to them that they would come to an understanding of who he is and what his mission was, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he would be going to a cross. And so when Jesus here makes this statement, what we're seeing is his focus is no longer about gathering additional disciples. That may happen. But that's not his focus at this point of his earthly ministry. His focus is instead to go to the cross just glance down for a moment at verse 21 we'll talk about it next time but verse 21 says from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised that's now the focus of his time here on the earth and the vast majority of israel's leaders had decided already that he was not the messiah and maybe not the vast majority but multitudes of people the common man had decided that you know what we should enthrone this guy as king and both of those ideas that he is not the messiah and that he should be the king set up on a throne somewhere neither of those ideas is going to help him accomplish his mission that he has from this point on which is to go to a cross and so the disciples they would have plenty of time to tell others about who jesus was just not yet and so jesus says you know what I got work to do, and I want to stay focused on our work. Let's just move in that direction. Don't tell this to other people at this particular time. Now, as we come to a close this morning, I think it's vital, quite frankly, that we do this. And we ask the same question that Jesus asked some 2,000 years ago. And again, 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And I would suggest to you that every one of us in this room, as well as those that are outside of this room, every one of us must, at some point in time or another, answer this particular question. Who do you say that I am? Because the door of eternity swings open. It hinges upon your answer to this particular question. And many of you, I suspect, have answered the question. You've looked at the question. Some of you have probably, possibly, put off the question. I'll get to that at another point in time. Well, Here again is the question. This is what's being asked. Who is Jesus? Are the claims that he made about himself, are they true? If he is indeed the only way to heaven, is he indeed the only way to heaven? And if so, have I received the gift of salvation and been forgiven of my sin? Those are questions that every one of us, before we die, better have dealt with those questions. Because if you haven't, or if you put it off and you said, I'll deal with it later, then you have. And you made your answer and your answer is no. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. And there are consequences related to that. The door of salvation swings open based on your response to that question. Who do men say that I am? Let's pray together. And so, Father, even in just this moment or so of silence and in prayer and worship later on, Father, we pray for each of us in this room and for any of us in this room that have yet to deal with that question. We pray that you would stir their hearts right now. And, Lord, that you would be so kind and so gracious to open their hearts to believe. Father, we know that so often we set up walls. Maybe in our head we say, you know what? I believe all that's true, but I don't want to. And then all the walls we run into. Father, I pray right now that you would break down those walls and you'd open up hearts. What I think of Peter in another place in which he just simply said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And Lord, I pray that you would bring people to sort of that tipping point this morning. Father, for those of us that believe, we do so because you've blessed us to do so. In your mercy, you revealed, you've opened up our hearts to see and believe and know. And Father, I just now ask in your kindness that you would flood us with a sense of our salvation once more. Lord, that the joy of our salvation would sort of bubble up from the deepest places within us. And that you would just cause great joy, Lord, to fill each of us this morning that know you. Lord, we delight in you. We thank you for coming to this earth on our behalf. Save souls even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.